0: I'm caring and I'm an alcoholic, and it's through the grace of God and the power of Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsorship that I've been sober since May 30th, 1982, and I can tell you that I am most pleased about that. My home group is the Pacific Group in West Los Angeles, California, the biggest AA group in the world, a group that I'm very, very proud to be a member of, just as I'm sure you're proud to be a member of yours. if you're new in this room this morning, I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous, God's magnificent AA, the program that saved my life, and it's going to save yours, too, if you're willing to take some real quick actions. And I suggest strongly that you get a sponsor and that you get that book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and that you get busy and do what everybody else is doing around here. And you're going to stay sober, as I've stayed sober for nine and a half years. And people like me cannot stay sober, I can tell you. Um, before I forget, I want to thank Bob and Steve and the committee for inviting me to come to Wyoming and, and share my life with you, you here this morning. This is an honor and a privilege, and it's one that I do not take lightly, I'll guarantee you. You guys, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I really do. And, and I think that it shows. And I make an awful lot of mistakes, and I do an awful lot of things wrong. But I'll tell you one thing, God damn it, that I love you. Make no mistake about that. Um, I've been taught to do an awful lot of things before I ever open my big mouth. And, and one thing is to talk to my sponsor, and Clancy sends you his love and very best wishes from California this morning, and uh, if anybody in here is wondering why I have Clancy for a sponsor and why I have a man for a sponsor, it's really quite simple. I didn't get sober in California. I got sober in a place called Lincoln, Nebraska, which I used to think was just a terrible place to get sober, if you want to know the truth, and, and I've changed my mind about that. I think that any place in AA is a good place to get sober, and I wasn't doing well in Alcoholics Anonymous in Lincoln, Nebraska. I went through 19 sponsors at a rapid clip, and I'm not particularly proud of that as I stand up here this morning, but it happens to be the truth and we're supposed to tell the truth up here and you know thank god for the old timers because somebody loved me enough to get me to my current sponsor and i gotta tell you that my life has done nothing but totally completely turned around as a result of that and i love that man more than any human being in the whole world i gotta tell you um Anyway, I was talking to my sponsor uh, this morning, as a matter of fact, and, and I said, what do you want me to talk about this morning? And he said, oh, quit trying to be cute. Get up there and share your experience, your strength, and your hope, and tell those people what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. Ignore the old-timers. They're going to get this program sooner or later without your inspiration, my dear. And, and, uh, and you talk to those new people who are the life and blood of, it, of A, and I believe that as I stand up here this morning, I welcome you, and I hope that you stay. And then I think I did the most important thing that I can ever do, and that's to say, God, please help me say what you want me to say to these people. God is very much a part of my life today, and it did not used to be that way for me, I can tell you. You guys, I come from an alcoholic hell that I cannot even describe it was so bad. And, you know, my life is real good today, and sometimes I forget how bad it was. And I can tell you that the day I got sober, I weighed 95 pounds. I was the color of squash. I had an alcoholic hepatitis. I had liver cirrhosis. I had ruptured esophageal varices. Uh, You know, uh, know, if you don't know what that stuff is, you don't want to know what it is because you die from that kind of stuff. And and I was standing on Skid Row in Lincoln, Nebraska, sucking on a bottle of Mad Dog. And if you guys haven't drank Mad Dog, i got to tell you, it is not one of your finer wines, i got to tell you that. And, And I was standing there thinking to myself, how in the hell did this happen to me? I never once wanted this to happen. I just wanted to have a good time. That's all I ever wanted to do. And I'd lost my nursing license. I'd lost my children. I'd lost my husband twice, although I didn't really care about that, I want you to know. And I lost my car, my house, I destroyed every relationship I'd ever had with anybody in my whole life. And I was clearly dying from alcoholism. And I know one thing this morning I want to share with you. This is a cunning, baffling, powerful thing. This is not a goddamn game that I'm playing up here. This is serious business. And that people do indeed die from alcoholism and it did not start out my life being like that for me you guys I come from basically a very lovely home and I want you to know that and my mother wants you to know it too I can tell you that and, um I my mom lives in Lincoln, Nebraska and I love my mom very very much and I was talking to her as I do every single week from L.A. to Lincoln and, and she said what are you going to do this weekend and I said mom I'm going to go uh, to Gillette, Wyoming and give an AA talk and, and she said Gillette, Wyoming why do you have to get up there and tell those people all that stuff about you they're not going to like you and uh I always say, Mom, the rottener you are in Alcoholics Anonymous, the more people love you. And, and uh, she said, I don't understand it. And I said, you don't have to understand it, Mom. And, and she said, and don't tell those people that you're afraid, because they don't like people that are afraid. And I always say, Mom, the more afraid you are in Alcoholics Anonymous, the more people love you. And, and one more time, she said, I don't get it. And I said, Mom, you don't have to get any of it. And, and then she, you guys, she always tells me this, and I love to hear it. And I prod her into it at any given opportunity. She always ends up by saying to me, I'm going to tell you something, young lady, you come from good stock, and we don't air our dirty laundry in public. And I always, I always say, Mom, it's not dirty anymore, and she doesn't understand that either. Uh. I obviously have a very sophisticated, I have a very sophisticated, elegant mother that obviously does not understand alcoholism, and why in the hell would she? She's not an alcoholic. Although I come from an alcoholic home, and I don't think that's neither here nor there. I don't do well with people that stand at a podiums and blame anybody for anything, because I'll guarantee that nobody poured it down me but me. I had every opportunity to do very, very well when I was growing up, and I did totally just the opposite. And you guys, my father was an alcoholic, and I love my father very, very much, and I would give. Any Anything in the world if that man were alive tonight, because this morning, because we would have a lot to talk about. I can tell you. And my dad did indeed die from alcoholism on the streets of Chicago in 1979 on Skid Row. And my dad was a major in the Air Force. And you tell me how a major in the Air Force dies on Skid Row? I don't understand how that happened other than the fact that he was an alcoholic. And I don't think he ever found AA. But if he did find it, he certainly did not stay sober as a result of it. And one more time, I'm going to say it one more time again this morning. This is a cunning, baffling, powerful thing. It is. Nothing that we should be playing around with, and I would—I love my father very, very much. I have a sister who uh, was Miss Rara in high school and homecoming queen and cheerleader and all that kind of crap, and made straight A's and never cracked a book, and I made straight F's and never cracked a book, and that was the difference. And I was very, very jealous of her when I was growing up. Uh, she was a beautiful little girl. She's a gorgeous woman today. She looks nothing like I do, I can assure you. And she was a model for many years from Neiman Marcus in Dallas, Texas, and just retired here recently. And now she's teaching. School in the West Indies. And I can tell you that as a direct result of Alcoholics Anonymous, I love my sister very, very much today. And I recently found out something about my sister I never used to know. She's also very beautiful on the inside, too, and I never used to know that. I have a brother who's a pilot in the Navy in Spain who just got home from Operation Desert Storm, who was in that first attack over there, and I am so glad that that war is over with. You have no idea. Neither one of these people are alcoholic. I have a a sister, another sister who's married to the Public Defender in Lincoln, Nebraska, who got me out of one hell of a bunch of trouble when I got sober, and I'm welcome in their homes today, and I never used to be. I come from basically a very boring family, if you want to know the truth, and I I go for colorful, exciting people to get themselves into a hell of a lot of trouble, apparently, and I have a couple kids who are 30 and 31 years old, and I know I certainly don't look old enough to have kids that age, but by God, I am, and and this is where it really starts getting interesting for me, you guys. These kids are anything but boring, i got to tell you, and as a matter of fact, they're a couple of jerks, if you want to know the truth, and, you know... I love my kids very, very much. Please don't get me wrong, but they are indeed a couple of jerks. And my eldest son's an alcoholic. He's in Nebraska right now, just beating the hell out of this disease, and just got picked up three weeks ago for his number ninth drunk driving charge, and one more time he's gotten out of it. It never ceases to amaze me, the stuff that we get away with, and I know that I'm probably the last person in the world that can help that kid. I can just be an example to him and keep my mouth shut, and that's what I try and do. I have another son who's not an alcoholic, and he's not a drug addict or anything like that. He's just... Goofy is what he is, and and I love to tell this story because it shows you exactly how my life goes. I got the strangest phone call from this kid in L.A. about seven years ago, and he said, Mom, I'm getting married tomorrow. And I thought, getting married tomorrow? It was a surprise to me that anybody would even have him, if you want to know the truth. And, and I said, Jeff, why do you call me the day before the wedding and expect me to be back in Nebraska? I said, the Pope's in Los Angeles? I doubt if I can get a flight out of here. And he said, Mom, I don't expect you to come. It's just going to be a tiny little wedding. Don't worry about coming. Well, you know, you don't tell people like me that stuff. I wanted to be there, and, and I couldn't get a flight out of L.A. I was right about that, they were all jammed, and, and I, I was just in a twit, you have no idea, and, and I talked to my sponsor about it, and, and this is the kind of loving sponsor I had, you guys. He said, well, what the hell are you going to do? Walk? If you can't go, you can't go now. Shut up about it. I want to hear another word about it, and, and I did, and, and I talked to my mom the day after the wedding, and and I said, Mom, how'd the wedding go? And she said, well, it was very nice, but who was that little girl with him? And I said, what little girl? And she said, well, apparently Jeff's got a four-year-old daughter that you don't know anything about, and I suggest you call your son and talk to him about it. And i got to tell you guys that I was more than happy to do that, make no mistake about that. And, and uh, I called Nebraska, and I said, Jeff, how'd the wedding go? And he said, well, it was very nice, Mom. And I said, who was that little girl with you guys? And he said, Mom, that's my daughter. And I said, why didn't you tell me that I had a grandbaby? I was so upset with him. Not because... because... Because I had a grandbaby because I didn't know about it. And he said, Mom, I was afraid you'd get drunk. And I thought, get drunk. I wouldn't have gotten drunk over that. See, that's what I mean. He's goofy, is what he is. And and uh, I was on the first thing smoking out of Los Angeles, California to get home and meet my little granddaughter. And, and this little girl walked up to me at the airport. And i got to tell you guys that she is the apple of my eye. She is the icing on the cake. Her name is Brandy. And doesn't that just figure? You know. And, uh, and she walked up to me at the airport. And she said, are you my grandma? And I said, well, yes, I am. And, and she said, well, you know, you're my favorite grandma. And see, that's what I want to hear. That's the stuff I I strive for, and and I I said, Brandy, why do you say that you don't even know me, and and she said, because you wear ribbons in your hair, and grandmas don't wear ribbons in their hair, and I thought, well, that's about the stupidest reason I've ever heard, but I'll take whatever I can get here, and I absolutely adore that child. I I flew her out to California a couple years ago to give me a cake at my number 7th AA birthday, and she flew out from Nebraska by herself, and I thought she would be terrified to be on that airplane by herself, but I was wrong about that. She got off the plane like she owned it after sitting in the cockpit with the pilot the whole trip, and I knew I was going to be in bad, bad trouble because this little girl never shuts her mouth for two minutes, and, and I said, Brandy, do you ever be quiet? You're giving me a headache, and, and she said, Grandma, I have a lot to say, and if you don't like it, take some aspirin, you know. I, uh, I think that we have a prospective member of Alcoholics Anonymous on our hands there. I hope I'm wrong about that. Um, <laughs> I stood in Lincoln, Nebraska last January and I looked at my second grandchild, a beautiful baby boy that was born to my son and his wife and I got to tell you that tears of gratitude rolled down my cheeks because I should not have been standing there. And I stood in Lincoln, Nebraska 6 months ago and I looked at my third grandson, a beautiful baby boy that was born of that alcoholic son of mine and his wife and one more time the tears were rolling. Things with my family are very, very good today and it is only a direct result of alcoholic sonness, I can assure you, and it took a long time for it to happen. I got to Tell you that, you guys. When I was growing up, I was a disruptive jerk, is what I was. Always in trouble. Always getting kicked out of classrooms. I hated discipline. I was very, very rebellious, and I literally hated people telling me what to do. And if you can imagine having Clancy Eye for a sponsor and being like that, you know. But anyway, I never felt like I belonged anywhere. And I hear that a lot from AA podiums, and I can identify with that 125%. I can tell you, and you know, I really don't remember my first drink, you guys, but I hope to God I never forget my last drink. But, and I hope it was my last one, but I remember what alcohol did for me from the very beginning. It made me feel like I belonged, and I could be anything I wanted to be, and I could do anything I wanted to do, and I drank at any given opportunity after that, and I was probably about 13 years old. I realized that I'm in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous this morning, and I honor that. I identify myself as an alcoholic from this podium. I'm also a drug addict, too. I need to make that a small part of my story. My sponsor encourages me to do that. And you guys, when I was growing up in Lincoln, Nebraska, there was not a lot of drugs on the street, but I'll guarantee that I found every single one of those drugs, and there was some marijuana and speed and stuff, and, you know, today if you get caught for possession of marijuana, you get a ticket, you know, big deal, when I was growing up, you went to prison is what happened to you, and that didn't scare me, I did everything I wasn't supposed to be doing. I'm one of these alcoholic females, and I hate to say this from an AA podium, but it's precisely the way that it was for me, and you're supposed to tell the truth up here, that if you pat me on the head, my pants fall off is what happens to me, and I got myself into a lot of trouble when I was growing I got to tell you, little boys were my downfall when I was a little kid, and men have been my downfall most of my life, and it continues to be that way for me today. I'm sorry to say, but anyway, I just absolutely love everything about them. I really do. And anyway, I got pregnant when I was 16 years old, and I had to get married. And as it must be, I married an alcoholic. Don't most alcoholic women? I, I go for colorful, exciting men that beat the hell out of you and all kinds of stuff, apparently. And anyway, I grew to hate this man very, very much, you guys. And he wasn't even a man. He was only seven. 17 years old, and I was only 16, and I couldn't cook, I couldn't clean, I couldn't take care of a baby, nor did I want to take care of a baby, and before we knew it, we had two babies to take care of, and I quickly found out what caused all that, and I put a halt to it, I can tell you that, and that caused me a lot of trouble throughout the years, and as it must be, I married a man that refused to work and stuff, and And like I said, I grew to hate him very, very much. And I'm not blaming him for my disease. So please don't get me wrong. It's just part of my story, and I need to share it. But anyway, I found a job as a nurse's aide at a hospital there in Nebraska. And for the first time in my life, I began to respect and admire something, and it's called nursing. And I had that respect and admiration today, too, by the way. And and I, I grew to love that job very, very much. It became the center core of my very existence and became more important than my family or anything else. And I'm not saying that that's right. It's just the way that it was for me. I was very, very immature when I was 16 years old and, and anyway you know I made a plan to myself. I would love to go to school and I would love to become a registered nurse. That's what I would love to do. You know, they say that alcoholics don't have willpower. And I'm here to tell you from this podium this morning that that is just crap. I have more willpower than 20 elephants. When I want to do well, I'm going to do well. And I went back and I finished junior high and I finished high school. And I went to college full-time for three years and I worked full-time for three years. And that is 18, 20 hours a day, you guys, and that is hard stuff to do. And at the age of 27 years old, I became a registered nurse. And you think I'm proud to stand up here this morning and tell you that I got jerked in front of the State Board of Nursing in Nebraska, and they tell me you are a disgrace to your profession, you're a disgrace to nursing, you're a disgrace to medicine, and you are no longer working because we just jerked your nursing license. If you think I'm proud of that, you are sadly wrong. You guys, I love my profession, and I really, really mean that. And I would never do anything to jeopardize the people that I take care of, nor the people that I work with under ordinary circumstances. And what I have to tell you this morning is a story about how I threw it right down. The toilet so I could drink. And that is total insanity. It's also called alcoholism, I guess. And anyway, at the age of 27 years old, I made another plan to myself. I'm divorced from this man, and I'm getting the hell out of this marriage. And that's exactly what I did. And girls, i got to tell you that a whole new world opened up to me, and it's called men and alcohol. And let me tell you, I went absolutely hog wild. I felt like I had a lot of less time to make up for, if anybody can identify with that. And, you know, I was engaged eight times during that divorce from this man, and I never did These people, two of them, died from alcoholism, for Christ's sakes. I don't know anything about social drinking. I drank, I ran around, I became engaged to alcoholics. And we do indeed die from this. And, you know, at the age of 27 years old, I went to work in an operating room there in Nebraska. At Lincoln General Hospital, I had that job for 19 years, you guys, and I loved working in surgery. I loved taking care of those patients. Working in the operating room is my cup of tea, there is no doubt about it. And I drank and I ran around with medical people mostly. They were colorful, intense people. They worked hard and they played hard. And you know, the instance of alcoholism amongst the medical profession is tremendously high, you guys, and that ought to do a lot for your security level if you're going to have surgery next week, but it happens to be true. And, and I grew to love these people very, very much, and they're so grateful that I'm sober that they can't see straight, and I'm talking about alcoholics is what I'm talking about, and you know, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says clearly that we're to tell in a general way what our drinking was like, and you're going to get the general idea real quick about what my drinking was like. we have a little town in Nebraska, and it's called Palmyra, Nebraska. And it's a town of about 200 people. And I can tell you from personal experience of that town of 200 people that they take a dim view of naked women walking on their highways, I can tell you that. And uh, I've been to the horse races in Omaha with a couple of nurses that I worked with. Uh, I love the horse races, too. I love everything I'm not supposed to be doing. And, and uh, we've been to the horse races, and we were all drunk and stuff. And, and the girls told me, they said, Karen, the horse races have been over with for three hours. We're all drunk. Let's go back to Lincoln. And I said, well, run along, I'd met two guys from Council Bluffs, Iowa, and these guys wanted to take me to a party, and by God, I was going. You know, you pat me on the head, and I'll follow you anywhere. And Anyway, I really can't tell you much about this party or the people I was with. All I know is that I woke up out of a blackout on Highway 2 by Palmyra, Nebraska, stark naked, walking down the highway, in my high heels carrying my purse. And it was February in Nebraska, and it's a tad bit nippy out there in February in Nebraska to be doing this, i got to tell you. and, and uh, and I thought to myself, what am I going to do? You know, what do you do? You walk is what you do. And, and uh, the first, uh, tonight I know I ducks, this point, I know why ducks feathers freeze, I can tell you that. And, and of all the luck, the first person I ran into was a state pig, you know. And in Nebraska, the cops travel by themselves. They don't have a partner. And out in California, they're a little bit smarter than that. And, and this guy stopped his squad car, rolled down his window, turned on his siren, and he looked at me and he said, what the hell are you doing? And I thought, well, that's about the stupidest thing I've ever heard anybody say. It's quite obvious what I was doing. And he said, Lady, you get in this squad car and you sit down and don't you touch me. And, uh... (laughs) You know, one thing about a person like myself: every time I'm in trouble, I'll do one thing more to make it worse every time. And, and I looked at this cop and I said, "I'm not getting in your squad car because you might try and rape me." And he said, oh. "He said, lady, I wouldn't bet any money on it. You are absolutely disgusting, is what you are." And that made me madder than anything that was going on to show you how sick I was. And anyway, I refused to get in this cop's car, and he had to get a matron out from the Palmyra, Nebraska city jail to come out there and get me. And that woman was not pleased. I'll guarantee you. They were very busy that night at that downtown jail, and they did not have time for this foolishness. And I went downtown, booked in that cop's raincoat. You know how cops keep raincoats in the trunks of their car for these occasions. And, and uh, I went downtown, booked for indecent exposure for assault and battery, for kicking in his windshield, for hitting her, for hitting him, all the delightful little annex that we pull as practicing alcoholics. And I'll never forget how humiliating it was in the courtroom the very next morning when my brother-in-law, the public defender in Lincoln, who did not know I was in that courtroom, came up to me. And he said, Karen, have you lost your marbles or what? Why would you do something like this? And you guys, I looked at my brother-in-law and I was to say this to many, many people in my drinking career. I said, oh for Christ's sakes, this could happen to anybody. You know. <laughs> And, uh, and we all know better than that, don't we? And You know, you know that cost me about $3,000 to get out of that, and I just shirted off like it was no big deal. If you're going to drink these, are the things that are going to happen occasionally, so what? You know, I'll never forget what it felt like to wake up in the very hospital that I worked at in surgery, and one more time I'd been the horse races. You know, for a number of years, I thought the horse races were my problem. It certainly was not my drinking. And, and anyway, I'm one of these alcoholic females with a big mouth when I drink, and I'd smart up to some guy that horse race track and he belted me right in the teeth is what he did. And and a plastic surgeon was standing over me putting 18 stitches in my mouth. And I'll never forget what this surgeon said to me. As long as I live, I'll never forget this. He said, Karen, we love you so much and you're such a good nurse. What is wrong with you? We think you're an alcoholic. Let's send you to a treatment center and get this drinking problem taken care of so you can get on with your life. And you guys, I could not believe the audacity this man had that he would say that to me. And I said, just fix my lip and get the hell out of my face. I'll drink if I want to drink. And that's exactly what I did. Boy, denial is the name of the game here. I know that for sure. And it went on and on and on for me. The drunk driving charges, the bad checks, all the stuff that we eventually do. My kids were in trouble. And it was starting to be not too much fun to be doing any of it anymore, i got to tell you. And, and I thought to myself, you know, my kids are in trouble here. You know, I need to get married to my ex-husband again. That's what I need to do. All these people keep dying and stuff. I can't marry him in junk. You know, I need to get married to this man again. And the kids need their father. And besides that, I need to get even with him for all all the things that he's done to me. And and those are not very good reasons to get married, I can assure you. And I'm not particularly proud of that as I stand up here this morning, but it happens to be the truth. And You know, if anybody in this room is thinking about getting married to the same person twice, don't do it, you're going to be sorry. Uh, The only way I can describe it is it's like taking a bite out of the same turd twice, if you will. And I'm sure he feels the same way I do, as a matter of fact, I know he does, but anyway, I danced that man through three of the most miserable years of his life on the face of this earth, and I'm certainly not proud of that. And I love to tell you this story I'm about ready to tell you, and my sponsor Clancy always tells me that is not funny and you should not be telling that from AA podiums, and I always say, okay, I won't tell anymore, Clancy, and he said, no, go ahead and tell it and let those people see how sick you really were. So, I'm still sick and I still think it's funny, so I'm telling the story. Um, when I married this man again, I told him, I said, if you ever hit me again, buddy, I'm going to kill you the next time you hit me. And he said, Karen, I'll never hit you again ever. And I said, you better see that you don't. And he lied is what he did. And, and uh, girls, you know what guys are like when they come home drunk, you know, they want to take you to bed and stuff. And I was not buying it. I happened to be sober that night for some reason. I'll never know why, because I usually wasn't. But I was sober, and if there's anything I cannot stand, it's some drunk man mauling me when I'm sober. And uh, I will say that when the shoe's on the other foot, though, it's fine with me. And anyway, this guy came home and, and indicated that to me. And I said, you get your hands off me and leave me alone. I wanted nothing to do with him, period. And he broke my arm is what he did. And I'm here to tell you that I was pissed. Make no mistake about that. As a matter of fact, I'm still pissed about it if you want to know the truth. And, and I told this guy, I said, you go to sleep on that couch, buddy, and so help me, God. When you wake up, you're going to wish you'd never been born. And he sat up for hours, you guys, with his eyes pried open. And as it must be, he finally passed out. And, and I was to, started drinking my martinis, and this is a classic example of what alcohol did for me. Alcohol told me what to do. I didn't tell it what to do. And I had about eight, ten martinis, and I was feeling no pain, i got to tell you. And I was sitting on that couch watching this guy. And I hate to tell you what this man was doing, but I can't tell you the story unless I tell you what he was doing. He was laying on the couch playing with himself. And I thought, you disgusting man, you make me sick to my stomach. And the more I drank, the madder I got. And a then I committed the cardinal sin that none of us should ever commit. I started thinking, and we should never drink and think at the same time, either one or the other, but not both at the same time, and, and I thought to myself, what can I do to get even with this guy for all the things that he has done to me, and you guys, you know, I'm a nurse, and I'm very familiar with male anatomy, and I'd be very familiar with male anatomy if I wasn't a nurse, but anyway, <laughs> uh, my kids had just gotten some super glue, and this was about 18 years ago when, when uh, super glue first came out, and it was powerful stuff, and you did not want screw around with super glue. and and I got that stuff out and I read the directions on that super glue and like I s- said I was drunk and I wasn't seeing very clearly and, and what I thought those directions said were if this hits human skin you better get it off within 15 hours now why would it say something like that what it said was was in fact if this hits human skin you better get it off within 5 minutes is what it said and, and I knew this stuff worked very very well because my kids were nailing down everything in the house that wasn't moving and, and I went over to this man and I poured super glue all over this guy's groin. And I mean everywhere. There was not one place on this man that did not have superglue. And I laughed about it, and I went to bed. And uh, I really didn't mean to hurt this guy as bad as I did. And I swear to God that that's true. But anyway, I woke up in the morning to screams of horror like you cannot even believe. And and I'll tell you what happened to my ex-husband. This guy never had the advantage of being circumcised when he was born. And now he clearly was, I can tell you that. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, this is really stupid, Karen. You really shouldn't have done this. And, you know, we had a telephone by our bed there, in our bedroom there in Lincoln, Nebraska, and uh, he called the cops, and the police were out in front of our home with their sirens going, and the, and the neighbors were gawking out their windows, and there was an ambulance out there, and you know, one thing you've got to keep in mind here, they don't see things like this happen in Lincoln, Nebraska. In California, it wouldn't surprise me a bit, but certainly not there, and, and the cops were laughing, which led me to believe the whole thing was funny, and, and they said, lady, you're under arrest for assault and battery, and I said, you can't arrest wives in Nebraska for assault and battery against their husbands. I knew better than that. And two days later when I got out of jail I guess I didn't know better than that. And and they took that man to the very hospital that I worked at in surgery. And he had to have surgery and one more time the whole staff saw what Karen did. And it turned out to be a terrible terrible thing. Those doctors there in Lincoln couldn't get that glue off and they had to get two surgeons down from Creighton University Medical School in Omaha, Nebraska to get that glue off. And You know there's a paper written about that at Creighton University Medical School in Omaha, Nebraska. And I would always wanted a paper written about me but not like this i got to tell you. And I remember thinking to myself I'm in that jail I was Thinking to myself, I'm getting the hell out of this marriage because when this guy comes home from the hospital, he is going to glue something to mine shut. And he would have, too, I gotta tell you. And I divorced this man one more time. And i got to tell you on the brighter side of things how Alcoholics Anonymous really does work, you guys, because my sponsor, Clancy, made me get on an airplane and fly to Sacramento, California, and make amends to my ex-husband, where he currently lives with his new wife and stuff. And I tried to tell Clancy, I am not sorry that I did that. Therefore, I don't have to make the amends, right? And he said, I don't care whether you're sorry or not. Get on that airplane and get up there and make those amends, and maybe one of these days you will be sorry. And i got to tell you guys, I did not want to do this at all, I gotta tell you. That man kind of backs up when he sees me, I gotta tell you. And you know, but we were able to sit down and talk and stuff, and I made my amends there. And I gotta tell you that I walked away from that man and I was free of what I had done to him. I was free of being married to him twice. And I can tell you that the promises in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous started coming through in my life when I made those amends. So I know that AA works if you work it. But that that's the thing here. You gotta do it do it. You just can't think about it, you gotta do it. And you know I divorced this man one more time and and you guys I got involved with the most bizarre man I have ever met before in my life. This guy told me he was in the Mafia. Now, I don't think anybody in Lincoln, Nebraska is in the Mafia, for Christ's sakes, and I was lying to him, and he was lying to me. And it was your typical alcoholic nightmare is what it was, and my kids were in trouble, and I was starting to get myself into a lot of trouble at work. I was oversleeping in the morning. I was calling and sick all the time. I was doing things in my career that I had never done before. You know, you guys, I have a good time at the podium, and I laugh, and I joke, and I have a hell of a good time up here, but I'm going to tell you something, that I am dead ass right on serious about my recovery, and you had better well believe that. You know, I love the bars, and I love the men, and I love the sex, and I love all the music, and I love all the crap that goes on in there. I fit in there like a glove, and i got to tell you that I particularly like what goes on after the bars close, if you want to know the truth, and I can tell you that I got myself into one hell of a lot of trouble, and, and what was going on in my life at this particular time, it was starting to be no more fun to be doing any of it. I was drinking on a daily basis. I was starting to take Valium for severe tremors I was starting to have, and that is clearly desperate drinking. Our book describes that vividly. And I can tell you that I was not getting not like myself much anymore, I can tell you. And, and anyway, the day came for me that hospital told me, they said, Karen, we have had all the crap we're going to take off of you. We cannot read about our nursing staff in the paper anymore, Blue and husbands, bad checks, all the stuff that you're doing. Everything in Lincoln, Nebraska is in the paper, you guys, that you do. doing. And, and they said, you're either going to a treatment center or you don't have this job anymore. And you guys, I looked at these people, and I made a remark to them that I was to pay for for a long, long time. I said, you and what army is going to make me? That is the stupidest thing I have ever done in my entire life, which shows you the insanity of alcoholism. And I walked out of that job, and I threw it right down the toilet. And I can tell you that I drank, and I drank, and I died, and I died a thousand times over. And I went to work at a nursing home there in Lincoln, Nebraska. And what I'm about ready to tell you is, are things that I am not proud to discuss from any AA podium. It took me years into my sobriety before I would ever mention this. And my sponsor encourages me to do this in case anybody in here can identify with this sort of thing. I found myself stealing drugs from that nursing home. I was stealing morphine and Demerol and cocaine and Valium and anything I could get my hands on. And if you think I'm proud of that, you are sadly wrong. And Anyway, I hated my own guts for doing it and stuff, but those doctors from Lincoln had canceled all those prescriptions and I needed that Valium. And if anybody in here did this, this kind of drinking, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It was either drink or use drugs at all times now. And anyway, the people that ran that place, they came up to me one day and they said, Karen, what is wrong with you? You're just weird is what you are. You know, you take good care of the patients, You're a good nurse and stuff, but you're just strange. And I remember thinking to myself, you'd be strange, too, if you had 200 milligrams of Demerol on board. You'd be strange, too. And I threw my narcotic keys at them, and I walked out of the door before they fired me. And I went to work at Bryan Memorial Hospital there in Lincoln, Nebraska. And, and you guys, it's a fine, fine hospital. And I was drunk on that nursing interview, and I got that job. And I don't mean I was falling down drunk. I was just maintaining a certain level in my bloodstream that I would not shake and have those tremors. And that is clearly, one more time, desperation drinking. And, and I, I found myself doing the same things at that hospital that I was doing at that nursing home. Stealing drugs and justifying in my head every single day. I don't mean to do this. This is just a temporary thing. I'm not a bad person. You know, this is the last time I'm going to do it and stuff. And we all know that that never happens for us. We just jump from the fat to the fire here. And, and anyway, six months went by for me, and I was doing it every single day. And, and one particular day I want to talk to you about. I got caught red-handed stealing some morphine from that hospital, and this is going to be the most humiliating day of my entire life. When the people that That caught me doing that. They said, you give us your narcotic keys and you get the hell out of this hospital and don't you walk back in this hospital again. You are a piss poor excuse for a nurse and we're reporting this to the State Board of Nursing in Nebraska. And that's exactly what they did and that's exactly what they should have done. And my other two jobs should have done it too, by the way. In retrospect today, I can see that, but I certainly could not see it at that time. And anyway, to make a long story short for me, you guys, I lost my nursing license is what happened to me. And I wound up on the streets of Nebraska is what happened to me. And I spent two years on the streets, you guys, and I have traveled all over the Midwest. I have prostituted myself. I've been in nut houses. I've been in detoxes. I've been chained down. I've been strapped down. I can't think of a thing that did not happen to me out there on those streets as a practicing female alcoholic. And I can tell you that I hated my own gut so bad I couldn't even look in the mirror anymore. And, And two years went by for me. And, you know, I have seen and done things that no woman should ever see or do, I can guarantee. And I'm still so sick in the head sometimes, I think to myself, I wouldn't mind seeing some of them again. You know, and my sponsor assures me that I'm still a very ill person in this program to be thinking that kind of stuff. But anyway... (laughs) Two years went by for me and, and there I was back in Lincoln, Nebraska. My kids were long gone. My family wasn't speaking to me. I had not one person in the whole world that wanted anything to do with me. And I know what Keith was talking about last night when he talked about the loneliness that only an alcoholic of my caliber knows about. And I can tell you that I hated myself so bad I cannot even begin to tell you. And anyway, there I was back in Lincoln, Nebraska standing on Skid Row sucking on a bottle of Mad Dog. And, and I remember thinking to myself that last day of my drinking and I hope to God it was my last day. You know, there was a Hilton Hotel adjacent to that Skid Row area, you guys, and, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, two years ago I used to stand on top of the Hilton Hotel and drink martinis with surgeons. What am I doing standing on Skid Row drinking with these people? And I rather imagine those people felt the same way when they arrived there. And I really can't tell you much about that day. I was so physically sick, I just apparently passed out on the streets. And I woke up in an intensive care ward of the very hospital that I was born at, that I worked at for 19 years, and I can tell you clearly that the alcoholic hell for me started the day I got sober. You know, they say that most alcohol withdrawal is over with in three days, and maybe it is for some people, but it certainly was not for me. It was going to be a long, long time before I was going to start feeling better, and I'm not a very big person, and I was coming off a quarter whatever a day, and, not, and, and uh, 200 milligrams of volume a day, and that's a lot of booze, and that's a lot of pills, and I had a lot of dying to do, and I was laying that intensive care ward. I had tubes coming out of my belly. They were draining fluid off my liver. I had IVs going, and I just wanted to die, you guys. I just wanted to die. I had not... Not One ounce of self-worth, not one ounce of self-esteem. And I just wanted to get it over with. And obviously that did not happen. And I found myself in withdrawal that I cannot even begin to tell you how bad it was. And I shook and I shook and I died and I died for 30 solid days. Every time I think about drinking today, the very thought of going through that again makes the hair on my neck stand straight up. And anybody that's been through withdrawal in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about. It is not a pleasant experience. And anyway, I used to scream at those nurses and say, you get me some Librium, you get me some Valium. You get me something. This is absolutely inhumane that anybody should have to go through this. And they said, Karen, listen to us. You need to fill every one of these tremors, and maybe you'll never do it again. And I got to tell you that I did not want to hear that. I got to tell you. And they said, furthermore, there's nothing wrong with your heart. It's not throwing any irregularities, and you need to fill every one of these, and then maybe you'll never do it again. I went to a fine, fine facility, you guys. They knew exactly what they were doing with alcoholics. But let me tell you what these people did for me. And I got to tell you that I will be forever grateful as long as I am sober and alcoholics anonymous. They got about 10 people from AA to come and sit with me, and these people never left me day or night. For 30 solid days, I had somebody from Alcoholics Anonymous with me, and I can tell you that for the first time in a long, long time, I had people back in my life again, and I can tell you that I know what that loneliness is about that our book talks about, and I was so happy that people were talking to me again, and I grew to love these people very, very much, and if you're an alcoholic of my sort, you know exactly what I'm talking about, And, and anyway, these people would sit with me by the hour, and they'd say, Karen, just Keep breathing. That's all you got to do is breathe. And and I'd say to them, when is this withdrawal going to stop? And they said, when it's time, that's when it's going to stop. And that wasn't good enough for me. I wanted a date is what I wanted. And and they couldn't give me a date. And they were absolutely accurate about that. When it's time, it's time. And at 30 days of sobriety, I watched in that official treatment program at that hospital. And let me tell you guys what I was like when I was 30 days sober. I needed you so desperately on that first day. But boy, I'll tell you what 30 days later, it was a whole different ball game when you started telling me what to do. And, And I watched in the group therapy for the first time at that hospital, and, and there was 14 men in that group, and they were all younger than I was, and, and they were in there for drunk driving charges and things like that, and I had done those things years prior to that. I could no more identify to where these people were coming from than the man in the moon, and, and this one guy looked at me, and he said, you think you're better than everybody else here, don't you? And I looked at this guy, and I made a comment to this man that I was to pay for for a long, long time in that treatment. I found myself a very, very active member of Alcoholics Anonymous in Lincoln, Nebraska. And I wasn't doing one thing the way that you teach people in AA to do it. I would tell the new people, you don't need to read the book and you don't need a sponsor. We do whatever the hell we want to do around here. This is an individual program. And needless to say, I was not real popular with the old-timers in Lincoln, Nebraska. And by this time, I was going to AA for the court system. That judge told me, he said, little girl, you're $58,000 in debt. you got about $3,000 worth of bad checks to pick up here. And if you leave that treatment center, you're on your way to York Prison for Women in Nebraska and if there's any doubt in your mind that I don't mean that just try me and there was no doubt in my mind that he didn't mean it and I stayed there but I got to tell you that I made the people in that treatment center their lives miserable and I'm not proud of that I went through many many counselors in that treatment center I was there for so long I felt like one of the staff when I got out of there but anyway I found myself very very active in AA but I wasn't doing anything the way you're supposed to be doing it and one particular day I want to talk to you about this old guy was 29 years sober and I got to tell you guys The old timers and Alcoholics Anonymous are so precious to me as I stand up here this morning. But i got to tell you, in 1982, I didn't care one way or the other what they thought. And, And this old guy grabbed me out of an AA meeting. He said, Karen, you stay away from the new people. How dare you tell the new people they don't need to read the book and they don't need a sponsor. You don't even know what the hell you're even talking about. You stay away from the new people. You're like a typhoid Mary in AA. Everybody dies around you, but you're able to stay sober somehow. He said, you stay away from the new people. And he said, furthermore, there's going to be a man from California speaking in Kearney, Nebraska this weekend. His name is Clancy, and you're going to go up and hear this man speak, and you're going to ask this man to sponsor you. He is a master at working with people like you. And you ugh, you guys, I, I'll tell you, the hair on my neck literally stood straight up, because I'd heard all about Clancy, and I wanted nothing to do with this man, period, because I knew I was going to be in bad, bad trouble. And i got to tell you that my fears have been justified 8,000 times over. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I told this old-timer, I said, who do you think you are that you're going to tell me who's going to be my sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous? He said, if you don't get in that car and go with us Saturday, I'm going to tell everybody in Lincoln how you stole money from an AA meeting. And I'll guarantee you, I was in that car going to Kearney, Nebraska. And for the old-timers here this morning, I paid that money back too, by the way. But anyway, i got to tell you that from a podium in Kearney, Nebraska, you guys, Clancy literally, and I mean literally put the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous into my life. And I can tell you that my life has never, ever been the Same since that talk. Because let me tell you what was going on for me. For the first time in my sobriety, I was identifying with another alcoholic. And as I understand Alcoholics Anonymous, that's what this thing is all about. And I knew what was wrong with me and I knew what I needed to do about it. And I was absolutely fascinated listening to this man. I was sitting on the edge of my seat, as a matter of fact. And by the end of this talk, I wound up by wanting this man for my sponsor. I know of no finer speaker than the world than my sponsor. And it's it's not important that you believe that. It's only important that I believe that. And anyway, I turned to these people that I was with from Lincoln and I said you remember one thing this was my idea and not yours and, and I walked up to Clancy and and I asked Clancy to be my sponsor. And you guys, he looked at me like I had just, you know, I, like I had just grown horns on the top of my head. And he said, I don't sponsor crazy people like you. And I thought to myself, why did he say that to me? He doesn't even know me. And that's a lie anyway. He sponsors people crazier than I ever thought of being. But anyway, you know, I wasn't aware of the fact that these old timers had called him two weeks prior to him coming to Nebraska and asked him if they brought me up, if he would talk to me. And he knew my game, let me tell you, and I was standing in my little white dress on, my little White gloves on, acting like an angel, and he saw right through my crap. I got to tell you, and he said, "You know, Karen, I really don't like to sponsor people on long distance basis, but I'm going to do this for you because if I don't do it for you, you're probably going to go die somewhere." But he said, "You better listen to me real good, little girl, because I'm going to say this and I'm going to say it one time only. You're going to call me every day till I tell you not to call me every day. I don't care how much money it costs you to call from from uh, Lincoln, Nebraska to Los Angeles, California. If you don't like it, get two jobs because that's what you're going to be doing. You're going to sponsor people. You're going to read that book. You become an active viable member of Alcoholics Anonymous, you are not going to argue with me, you're going to do what the hell I tell you to do, and furthermore, you're not going to argue with these old-timers in Nebraska. And if you don't want to do that, then get yourself a different sponsor. And you guys, see, I understand that kind of language, and i got to tell you that I looked at this man, and the hair on my neck literally stood straight up, and I said two words that I almost fell over when I said them. I said, yes, sir. And I'll guarantee you that I say that today, too. You know, respect's got to start for me somewhere, That might as well start with my sponsor, in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went back. Back to Lincoln, I became very, very active in AA in the right way, and I wound up by sponsoring 56 women in that town, and I'm not bragging about that. It is not that much fun to sponsor 56 crazy women in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I can tell you that I grew to love those women very, very much, and they literally showed me the first four years of my sobriety what to do and what not to do in this program. And every single one of those people are still sober today. It's not because of me, it's because they're active, viable members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and anyway, One of the first directions Clancy gave me, he said, I want you to get that nursing license back. And I tried to tell Clancy, I cannot go through that kind of humiliation, Clancy. And he said, are you arguing with me? And I said, no. And he said, get up to the State Board of Nursing in Nebraska and tell those people that you have been sober in AA for two years, that you would like the opportunity to get your nursing license back. And I knew it wasn't going to work, you guys, but I did it anyway. And I think that's the most important thing that I can say from this podium this morning. I did what my sponsor asked me to do, whether I thought it was going to work or not. I went up to the State Board of Nursing Nebraska and I asked them for my license back. And they looked at me and they said, how many links are you willing to go to? And I had to go to a lot, you guys. I had to take crap off people for two years that I wouldn't hire to mow my own lawn, if you want to know the truth. And I had to keep my mouth shut in the process, too. And one of the happiest days of my life occurred about uh, just about seven and a half years ago. And one more time I was jerked in front of the State Board of Nursing Nebraska. And this time what they told me literally brought me to my knees for the first time in Alcoholics Anonymous. What they said to me was, welcome home you're fully reinstated as a registered nurse and I can tell you guys that that is a gift from AA I do not deserve that but by God I'm going to take it I'll tell you that and and i that had to be my first spiritual orgasm in this program, and I, I have not had one before or since it's matched it, I can tell you. But anyway, I flew out to California to visit a couple times, and I fell in love with Southern California, A, and I had to be part of it. And I told Clancy one day on the phone, I, I want to belong to the Pacific Group. I want to live in Southern California. I want to live on that crazy Venice Beach with all those crazy people. I knew it would fit in like a glove there, too, and I've not been wrong about that. And I want to work at UCLA in the operating room. I want to be on two of their transplant teams, their, their heart and liver transplant teams. And every single one of those things have come true for me, you guys, and those are all gifts from AA. I do not deserve any of it, but by God, I'll tell you what, I'm going to take every single bit of it. And I love this program so intensely, so very, very intensely, I can't even begin to tell you how much I love it. And, you know, people say to me all the time, why do you keep doing all this stuff? Why? And, and I, because I love you guys so very, very much. I have to pay back what's been given to me so freely. And besides that, if I don't stay here, I'm going to wind up on Skid Row again. And I can tell you that. And I have a couple stories to tell you guys, and I'm going to sit down. I don't want to go over here. And, and these are stories that I love to share, and I share them all over the world with people in Alcoholics Anonymous because they are so very precious to me. And then I get to relive them all over again one of the first things Clancy told me he said Karen where are you at with your spiritual program and, and I thought to myself what is this some kind of a joke you know I don't believe in God you know I said Clancy I can't do that stuff I don't believe in God and he said you don't have to believe in God just do what I tell you to do he said get on your knees in the morning and get on your knees at night and just pray for God's will that's all I want you to do and I did one more time what the man asked me to do you guys and I didn't feel any connection with God I felt like a fool doing it if you want to know the truth and, and two years went Buy for me, and and uh. I would tell Clancy on the telephone, I'd say, this isn't working for me, Clancy. Can I quit doing it now? And he said, Karen, are you stupid or what? Are you staying sober one day at a time in Alcoholics Anonymous? And I said, well, you know that I am. He said, that is the point of the whole thing. And he sat me down one day and he showed me in our book where it says that I get a daily reprieve contingent on a spiritual maintenance for the power greater than myself. And he said, Karen, furthermore, there's going to come a day in your life when you're going to have no mental defense against that first drink. And you had better be doing something in this area because I can't can't help you. There is not a human being in the world that can help you. And you have got to turn to the God of your understanding, and if you don't have one you are going to be dead from this disease. And I believe that as I stand up here this morning, you guys, because it has happened to me so many times I can't even begin to tell you. So I kept doing what the man asked me to do. Whether I felt it or not, I did it anyway. I took the action. And in 1985, I found myself in Montreal, in Canada, at the World Conference of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if any of you guys have not been to a world conference, I can tell you that it is a magnificent experience. It's one that none of us should miss. And and AA has a conference every five years. And in 1995, it's going to be in San Diego. And I hope that you all get to come to this. And Anyway, I found myself in a great big football stadium at that Friday night meeting, and and there 56,000 sober alcoholics in that football stadium. And I looked around myself and everybody was up and having a wonderful, wonderful time. And and they were down in the football field and they were practicing for a flag ceremony at that World Conference. And they had alcoholics from all over the world carrying their national flags. And I know it sounds real corny to the new people, but the longer I stay sober, the cornier I get for some reason. And and my sponsor was down there helping them practice for that flag ceremony. And people from all over the world carrying their flags. And I ran down to tell Clancy High and he introduced me to people from all over the world in AA you guys and you know I'm from Nebraska and I was impressed let me tell you and I'm impressed today when I meet people from all over the world in Alcoholics Anonymous and anyway I ran back up and joined my friends and that flag ceremony started and I'll never forget this as long as I live I'll never forget this when the United States of America's flag touched the turf of that stadium I saw 56,000 sober people go absolutely crazy and I looked around myself and I did not see one dry eye in that football stadium you guys I saw those old timers sitting around and all the new people and all the people in between. And they all seemed to be loving Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember thinking to myself, what is wrong with me? Why can't I feel what these people are feeling? God, I wanted what you guys had. And I was willing to go to any length I had to go to to get it. And for the first time in my life, I got tears in my eyes that I did not try and stop. And I can tell you, that for the first time with any amount of sincerity whatsoever, I said, God, thank you for getting me here. Please help me to stay here. Please help me to love Alcoholics Anonymous as much as these people do. God, I wanted what you guys had. I wanted it so bad. And I cried and I cried and I cried. And I can tell you guys that chills literally ran up and down my spine. And I can tell you that for just one solid second that my world stopped and I remembered that woman who was standing on Skid Row in Lincoln, Nebraska, who literally could not get sober, who literally could not. And here she was in a foreign country, in a foreign land, three and a half years sober. And I knew there had to be a God because I knew that these people could not have pulled this off. I literally could not quit drinking, and here I was, three and a half years sober. And I can tell you that in a foreign country, in a foreign land, I came to believe in a power greater than myself. Just like the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, we come to believe by watching the people in AA, I apparently had seen enough and done enough and I was ready at that time for that to happen to me. And I am so grateful because I've talked about God every day sincerely since. Because I believe what my sponsor has taught me. I have got to have this as part of my life or I'm going to die from alcoholism. You guys, I work at UCLA in the operating room. I'm on two other transplant teams. I'll be there at 7 o'clock tonight, you know, as a matter of fact. And it's, it's a magnificent job, but it's just a damn job is all it is. And, you know, my sponsor has taught me that God and AA have been got to be center core of my very existence and it's not some damn man it's not a job it's nothing it's god and aa and everything else revolves around that and i believe that as i stand up here this morning and a. I'm going to tell you this story, and I love to tell this story especially to people in Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and we have a terrible nursing crisis right now in Southern California, and, and you know, we're working our asses off is what we're doing, and, and this one particular week I want to talk to you about, i would worked 72 hours, and you know what we're like when we're too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? I was a bitch is what I was, and, and anyway, I... Uh, I had this particular night off, I want to tell you about, and my boss called me on the telephone. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and my boss is from West Germany, and she makes Clancy look like a pussycat, I can tell you, and she's probably the best nurse I've ever met before in my life, and maybe one of these days when I grow up, I'm going to be just like her. And Anyway, she called me, and she said, Karen, I know I woke you up. I know you're not on tonight. I know you're not on call. We've got a liver transplant to do over here on a little girl that's about three years old. I need you to come over here and I need your help. I've got 18 people sick. And I said, I am not coming to work. I am too tired. I had been bled white for Christ's sake. And and she hung up on me, is what she did. And you know, my sponsor has taught me to do what's in front of me and not debate it. And I was going to call Clancy, but I don't want to talk to him at 2 o'clock in the morning about any damn thing. And I just went to work and I'm so glad that I did because the most precious thing happened to me. My sponsor has taught me, you guys, to do what's in front of me and that was clearly in front of me and, and I got over there and I sent my orderly upstairs to get our little patient bring her down to surgery and, and he brought this little girl down and, and he called me in the back and he said Karen you're not going to believe all the people with this family it's just absolutely incredible and, and I thought to myself well that's nice that they have the support and stuff and I was such a crab that night I was so tired and I went out front to get our little patient and we had some time to kill and stuff a jet was coming in from the east coast for the liver for this child and, and we had some, t- some time to talk and stuff and anyway the first thing I noticed was the mother. She had the most beautiful blue eyes I have ever seen before in my life, and, and the dad was good-looking and stuff, and there was probably 50 to 75 people with this family, and, and I looked down at my little patient, and you guys, i got to tell you that Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me to love at a level that I never, ever, ever dreamt possible for myself, and I looked into the same beautiful blue eyes that that mother had, and I ever so gently fell in love with that little girl, and she was so sick, you guys. She was so sick, she couldn't even lift her head off the pillow, and... And she was dying from some strange liver thing, and and she was hanging on to a bear. She had a bear wrapped in a blanket, and, and was holding on to this bear for dear life. And and I said to the little girl, I said, "Oh, you brought your little bear down to surgery." And and she tried to tell me that her little bear was so sick he was going to have a liver transplant, and he was so scared that she came down to surgery with him. And and I said, "Oh, you're both going to have one." And she said, "No, no, just the bear." But anyway, <laughs> we sent the mom and dad out the waiting room, and we took that little girl back to surgery. And and this little girl looked at me, and she said, her mom and dad were. At absolute hysterics you guys it was a very emotional thing for me and and she said why is my mommy crying and I said your mommy is crying because she loves you so much and you guys have taught me to say those kinds of things because it's the truth and tell little kids the truth she's crying because she loves you so much and she said tell my mommy not to cry I can't stand it when my mommy cries and we couldn't do that and stuff and we put that little girl to sleep you guys and i got to tell you that that case did not go well we almost lost that baby a couple times due to blood loss and things but she survived buy that 16-hour liver transplant, and she went up to her room, and I became obsessed with this child, and I had to see her again. I have never seen an operating room team of people pull together like they pulled together for that baby that night, and it was absolutely awesome, and, you know, we have a rule at UCLA, you may not become involved with these transplant patients because they want to know where the organs come from, and you cannot, we cannot, you know, tell them, it's best not to see them after surgery, and I don't need to tell anybody in this room this morning that I'm real good at breaking rules now, aren't I, and I just had to see this little girl again. And and I thought to myself, you know, it's six days later, and I'm just going to go up to her room and open her door, and I'm not going to talk to anybody, and that's exactly what I did. And you guys, that's, you know, I went up to her room, I opened her door, and I could not believe what was in front of my face. My God, the power of God, you guys, the power of God. Here was this little baby girl, and she was six days post-op from a 16-hour liver transplant, and it was the first time she'd been up since her surgery, and she was jumping up and down in her crib, little kids popped back real fast from surgery, i got to tell you, and Her diapers were hanging around her knees, she had a baby bottle in one hand, she had that bear in the other arm, and she had that blanket wrapped around that bear, and she had put band-aids all over this bear. He had band-aids on his eyes, his ears, his nose, and I mean everywhere. And, And that whole room full of people were in there. And they were all just tears of joy rolling down their faces. And something caught my eye out of the corner of my eye. And I'll be damned if our book, Alcoholics Anonymous, wasn't sitting on that kid's dresser. Now, if you think I was going to stay out of that room, you're sadly mistaken. I didn't care if I got fired. And I was in that room like a flash. And and I said to the mother, I said, whose book is that? And she said, well, that's my book. And I said, oh, my God. She said, I'm a member of AA, and so is my husband. And her sponsor was there, and his sponsor was there. And those 75 people, you guys, had driven 500 miles to be with this family. They were not from the L.A. area. And I can tell you that they showed me one more time what this program is all about. It's about love and service. And I was impressed, let me tell you. And I said to the mother, I said, how long have you been sober? And she said, five years today. And I thought, oh, wow, what a wonderful present, her little girl up for the first time and stuff on her birthday. And, and anyway... I watched over the little girl and this little girl stopped dead in her tracks and she said, go away, I'm not sick anymore. And uh, I had my surgery stuff on and it scared the hell out of her is what it did. And if I'd known I was going in the room, I certainly would have changed clothes and stuff. And, and it, she looked at me and, and she said, I'm not sick anymore. And I said, well, I just came up to see how you were doing. And, and you guys, she handed me her little bear and she said, you take him home and you take care of him because he needs a nurse to take care of him. He's so sick and stuff. And, and I told the mother, I said, oh, I can't take that child's bear home. You know, I I just can't do that. The the bear went through this little girl's liver transplant. Please keep it. You need to keep it as a memento. And she said, Karen, please take it. She wants you to have it. She's got 50 bears in this room. And she did indeed have 50 bears in the room. And I felt like a fool walking down the hall with that bear. But I've got to tell you that that bear is my most prized possession in our beautiful program, I've got to tell you that. And I've got him in a plastic bag, and nobody can touch him ever. I'm a selfish person. And and anyway, I, I thought to myself, what can I give this mother here? I need to reciprocate here And I remembered something that was in my pocket, you guys. And I carry a medallion at work in my pocket, and it was a medallion for five years of sobriety. And I'd held on to this medallion for about three years too long. And, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we say that we got to give it away to keep it. we got to give it away. And I could not seem to find the person that was special enough, in my opinion, to give my five-year medallion from my sponsor, Clancy, to. And I knew that I had found the person to give my medallion to. And the one thing about it that I want to share with you is that I wanted her to have it. That's what you've done for me. I wanted this one to have my medallion, and, and I went over to here. and if anybody here is wondering how can I keep a medallion in my pocket at night, it's because there are narcotic keys next to that medallion, and I don't need to tell anybody in this room that sometimes when I open that narcotic cupboard, that my eyes light up like firecrackers, I can tell you that, and I can grab onto that, and I can remember where the hell I'm coming from here, and anyway, wherever the mother... And I said, I want you to have my five-year medallion. And I told her the history of that medallion. And, and she said, oh, Karen, I can't take that medallion. My God, Clancy gave you that. Please keep it. And I said, no, no, no. I want you to have it. Please take it. I want you to have it. And she took my medallion. And, and the nurses got wind of all this, and we got a cake for the mother. And we celebrated her five years of sobriety. And I can tell you guys, it was probably the most magnificent day of my entire life. And, and I was so proud, so very, very proud to take those people to my home group, and Alcoholics Anonymous that night the pacific group and i called clancy and i said how are we going to get these people over there and we had 50 cars right out front of that hospital and we took them all to the pacific group that's what people on AA do for each other and you know people say to me all the time why do you keep doing all this? Why do you keep giving all these talks, going to all these meetings, all the things that you do? And I know of no greater things to say to people, so that this to the end, that my great blessings may never spoil me, that I may forever live in faithful contemplation of him who presides over us all. And you guys, there's more reasons than that for me. You're the ones that walked with me when nobody else would walk with me. You held my hand when nobody else would hold my hand. And you told me that you loved me, and God damn it, I need you as desperately this morning on this podium as I needed you in 1982. And... You've taught me how to live. You've taught me how to love. You've taught me how to keep my pants up and all those things, you know. And... I don't do any of those things very well, but I'll tell you the one thing that I do with 200% absolute perfection, and that is this, that I love you more than anything in the whole world. And it's truly a story from an alcoholic hell that I cannot even describe. I have truly been given, just like the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, I have truly been given the keys to the kingdom. And I can tell you one more thing, and I'm going to sit down here. In Alcoholics Anonymous, we speak the language of the heart here. And if you're new in this room this morning, I welcome you, and I hope that you stay, and I can tell you that that language of the heart has kept me walking this road for almost 10 years, you guys. And I can tell you that it has been one hell of a long walk from Skid Row in Nebraska to where I stand this morning in Gillette, Wyoming. And I can tell you that just like this sign up here says, "Freedom for spirituality, that, through spirituality," but for the grace of God and the Alcoholics Anonymous, that I would have missed every single bit of it. And I thank you. I thank God. I thank AA for my life. Let's all stay and thank you for having me. Thanks.